guys. Welcome to the Jesus Culture Podcast. We are always so honored that you would take time and whether you're watching or listening, whatever you're doing, you've made, you've carved out space to hear us chat and we are thankful for that. Um, I'm Becky Johnson, um, one of the co-hosts of the Jesus Culture Podcast and I am joined here by our other co-host, Phil Manginelli from Atlanta, Georgia, who's joining us via Zoom. Phil, say hello. Hey, what up everybody? We are so excited about today's episode because it's a returning guest. We don't get to say that often. We normally just have people on and then they never want to come back. <laughs> the new era. It's a new, new era of the podcast. That's right. Returning guest AJ Swoboda is joining us all the way from his office in, is it in Portland? No, I'm in Eugene, Oregon, and I'm uh, here in Oregon. It, it rains, you know, 10 10 months out of the year. But if you can see, there's actually sun outside right now. Wow. Every Oregonian right now is just walking on air. We are all just <laughs> so happy. I'm so happy for you. What a great day to be inside on a podcast. <laughs> AJ is joining us. Um, we recently had you on um, and we talked about Sabbath. You were, you have, you had written a book called Subvers- Subversive Sabbath. And we talked about Sabbath and it was a beautiful, challenging conversation. And, um, one of, one of my favorite, I will honestly say one of my favorite episodes, and I'm, I'm personally, um, just in the journey of Sabbath right now. So it was a really great conversation. And then through that, we said on the podcast, we said, Hey, we want to have you back to talk about your book because you just came out. And so that's what we're doing here. We are 48 hours post book release. How do you feel? We're there. Yeah. You know, uh, it is, uh, it's, it's funny. I feel this is my, this is my 10th, um, uh, my 10th book. And I have never had kind of anxiety and I should say, I've never felt as emotional about something I've written before. Really? So yeah. Yeah. Last evening I was, um, I gave a talk at uh, Bridgetown church in Portland, Oregon on doubt and deconstruction in this whole conversation. And I just found myself overwhelmed with emotions because this is, this is real, real stuff. Well, we want to talk about that. that. My other books aren't real (laughs) stuff, but this one has a little bit of a, an oomph to it. And, and I want I hope we can talk about that and why the, you know, what the emotions are and and jumping into all that before that, can I just take a minute? This is your 10th book in how many years of being an author? Like, (laughs) so I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I will tell you this. I will tell you, I'm 39. I'm almost 40. Um, funny story. The first time I go into my counselor's office, first time I met my counselor, you know, when you go into a counselor's office, you have to fill out the intake form, which is basically your way of telling them everything that's wrong with you. Why are you yeah, here? And I fill it out. And at the time I'm 35 years old and I had written five books, six, six books or something like that. And I, I write that in the thing and he goes, so what do you do? What do you do for life? I tell him what I do. And he goes, you're how old? And I said, I'm 35, 36. And he goes, you've written how many books? I've said, I've written six books. And he goes, without even blinking, he goes, let's talk about your relationship with your father. <laughs> and his, his point his, he was making a very clear point. Wow. You are a little too driven for your age. <laughs> and the truth is there's some, un, there's probably some unresolved work uh, underneath my drivenness that I, I'm sort of being joking about, but truthfully, um, I've probably written far too much for my age. That's, I mean, I was trying to gently kind of allude to that. You're <laughs> I'm glad you're counseling. 
What is wrong with you, AJ? Yeah, like, wow, you've written 10, ten books. We invited you to talk about the book, but we're really here to talk about Yeah, AJ, wow, you look young for 80. You look young for 80 years old. <laughs> What's your skincare routine? Okay. All right. Well, let's, Oil let's, of Olay. Oil <laughs> of Olay. And it's Sabbath. A lot of the Sabbath, right, helps reverse the aging process. Phil, let's jump into this. Um, you're, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to just like, I, I, you know, AJ, I love just hearing you, you know, share as, as, as you step into this moment of what you've written, there, there comes profound emotion because uh, what you and I both know, we've talked about before is that this is not just a, um, this is not just a book on a certain piece of theology or understanding. Um, it is you stepping into maybe the most important moment of our cultural context and the greatest point of pain that we carry as pastors and as followers of Jesus, as people we deeply love, struggle with faith, struggle with the Bible and choose to walk out this road of, of deconstruction or walking away. And uh, what we carry, what, pe- what most people don't understand is that what we carry, uh, it, it's, it's, it's like carrying a wound in our heart for people we love. It is, it is as if a, a part of the sufferings of Jesus are always with you as a pastor in this place. And so I, I just, I really honor, and I, and I even say that to say, this is how much this conversation matters. And if, for anyone who's listening, this might be the first time you hear about some of these topics, or you may be head deep in them yourself, or other people you love may be head deep in them. It doesn't matter what. If this is the first time you're hearing about this, this, I promise you, will not be the last. And this is a moment where we need to take this incredibly seriously about what's happening in our world, what's happening with followers of Jesus in the Western world. And and uh, and I, I just, AJ, I just want to say how much I love you and honor you that you've stepped into this place. And I think this would be a great kind of, let me ask a question. You've just written a book uh, called After Doubt that is genuinely about faith, doubt, and and what it means to actually come back to a vibrant faith in Jesus. And I would just love to start by letting you just say, why did you write this book? What is this book? And just, just feel free to cast vision for the moment and the writing and really what you're trying to say in, in what you wrote. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember years ago, um, uh, Deb, Deb Hirsch, Deborah Hirsch, Alan and Deborah Hirsch, who, they're both really uh, seminal thinkers on on what it, like what what it means to enter into the mission of the church, mission mission of God in the world. Um, she told me once uh, over dinner, she said um, that the best missionaries when they go into a new city. Uh, the best missionaries always go to the point of pain in that city. They always go to the place of pain. They always go to the place where the most hurt is because it is there that God is often doing his greatest work. Um, This is a point of pain. Uh, This is a point of real uh, difficulty in our church, in our churches, uh, in our, in our culture and our moment in history. Um, And, and really the, the story that, that I've written here, this book that I've written, which is about doubt and deconstruction, these kind of two correlating adjacent topics, they're not the same, but similar topics, um, is birthed out of the fact that for the last 20 years, I've served the spiritual needs of college students. So for 10 years, I was a college pastor. Uh, For 10 years, I planted a church in urban Portland, Oregon. And now for two years, I've been a full-time academic serving undergraduate students. And when you spend 20, 22 years of your life serving 
young people who are going through doubt and deconstruction themselves, you learn a lot about that experience. And I have uh, personally uh, watched and observed um, hundreds of people that I have led, people that I've served, people who have been in my congregation, friends, family, uh, who have undergone what we call uh, the deconstruction process and watched and grieved and wept and sought how God wants me to be a Christian in the middle of this. And ultimately, at the end of the day, this is my, this, my book, this, this book is an attempt at going to the pain rather than running from it. Mm. You said doubt and deconstruction are similar but different. Could you hit on that? Well, how, how are they? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're interrelated. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, doubt, I would say uh, that doubt, um, uh, doubt is often a byproduct of faith. So, so right, when we believe in Jesus, um, from time to time, we all go through a season where we begin to wonder, you know, and doubt the things that we've held to. You know, we, I get often, I often get asked, is doubt bad? Well, that's like saying, is carbon dioxide bad? You know, when you breathe, carbon dioxide is the, is the byproduct of breathing. And I, I think in a lot of ways, doubt is the carbon dioxide of faith. It's the sign that you're actually trying to believe. Mm-hmm. And that from time to time, when we actually seek God with our whole body, mind, soul, and spirit, that from time to time, you know, we struggle to believe. And, and I think that's doubt. I think deconstruction is a little bit different. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole philosophical tradition behind deconstruction that goes back um, even before Jacques Derrida and, and, and Foucault and sort of the French postmodernist uh, thinkers. Um, but it, that was really a moment where it was sort of catapulted into our world as a whole way of thinking. And essentially deconstruction is at the end of the day, uh, one's intentional undoing of beliefs. Now here, this, just to be very clear, deconstruction is not all bad. Mm-hmm. Jesus deconstructed. When you read Matthew 5 through 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, whenever Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is deconstructing bad interpretations of the Old Testament. Wow. Deconstruction is in some respects a Christ, an, an element of following Jesus. But there is also a bad side to deconstruction. And in, in this book, I attempt to articulate really what is the difference between good deconstruction that is our attempts at clarifying what we believe and bad deconstruction that often leads to what you and I both see on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, which are individuals publicly deconverting, deconstructing their faith to the degree that it's no longer a representative of historic Christian faith. Yeah. I recently heard a passage. And, and I should say that experience for all of us has become uh, almost a liturgy. It's become something we've we've become accustomed to. And it's not only our friends and family and co-laborers and Jesus that are doing this. Uh, it's now our Christian celebrities that are doing it. And, and, and when we see this happen, um, it impacts us. And how do we deal with it? Right. I heard, I recently heard a pastor say that deconstruction, and I'd never heard it framed this way, is like a necessary part of the human experience and a necessary part of a believer's life. And he went through phases 
um, where you have construction, where your faith is constructed, deconstruction, where you, you know, figured out, and then the third phase of reconstruction. And is that, would, would in your experience with young people and, and, and academics and all of this, would you find that that is true, those, those phases and the importance of them? Yes. So in my book, After Doubt, I refer to this as the theological journey and give language to those three stages. There's going to be, I know, some academics in my field that are going to question those three categories, and I'm absolutely fine with that. I'm not attempting here to change the minds primarily of academics. I'm attempting to sum up a lot of, uh, a lot of literature for the sake of uh, kind of an understandable paradigm. But yes, uh, construction are those stages where we begin to receive the faith, those years that we begin to believe, right? For all of us, we came to faith in some community, and we were taught our original beliefs about Jesus somewhere. Um, deconstruction is a period of time in our faith journey where we begin to question some of the things we've received. Now, again, just to be clear, that process of deconstruction is often very, very important. Uh, for example, when I met Jesus, I was 16 years old, and I went to, for the very first time, my first church that I went to was a very conservative evangelical church in my hometown that I look back on with such profound gratefulness. They taught me how to Bible. They taught me how to share my faith. They taught me the gospel. Mm -hmm. They taught me about the Trinity. They taught me that I needed to break up with my girlfriend. <laughs> you know, I, I learned some very important lessons in that church. But I also was handed a very, very low view of women. Now, it was not until I went to seminary and began to study the Bible a bit more that I began to realize that an aspect of the theology I'd been handed really, really, really did not reflect the Bible. Mm. And what I needed to do was actually begin to rethink that area of my understanding. But here's the thing, is too often when we begin to wake up ways in which we've been believing that are not good help and Jesus-centered, we often start to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And soon it moves from healthy deconstruction to faith destruction. And that is a very dangerous path to go down. Um, but the process of deconstruction and deconstructing bad beliefs is very important. It's very life-giving. And then reconstruction, as you named it, which again, these are the three categories that I've outlined in the book. Reconstruction is essentially coming back to our faith with a whole new set of eyes. Mm -hmm. Paul Ricoeur, who's a French philosopher, called it the second naivete. It's coming back with a new set of eyes to your old faith. And often, unfortunately, we see too many people enter the deconstruction experience and have absolutely no paradigm to understand that does not have to be the end of their faith journey. And so they assume because they have questions about their faith, it means they're no longer faithful. When in reality, we have a story in the Bible, a guy named Thomas, who walked through all three stages, belief, mm -hmm deconstruction and reconstruction, and eventually became one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church. This is my way of saying there is a path through deconstruction that leads deeper to Jesus than we ever imagined. Mm. And I, you know, I'd, I'd love to ask you some questions on this because for the, the, so many people I love have gone through this process. Some of my closest friends, 
uh, in in this. What you know, I feel like the word deconstruction is uh, something that's newer on the scene, even though certainly it's it, it, in essence isn't, and uh, even it in theological understanding isn't. But it, it's almost this idea, this phrase that's that's new. But even before, I've, I, how many friends I've watched to go through this process, walk away from Jesus, and uh, how many people I love are somewhere in this process, whether very very beginning journeys or or really at the, at the end stages of them. And um, what, what grieves me uh, as a pastor is that there is this, this natural vision of Jesus, of what you talked about in, in Matthew, right? Uh, uh, the, you've heard it said, but I tell you this, this clarifying, this calling back to purity. There's this, uh, even, even how we would describe the work of sanctification in our lives and the role of the Holy Spirit constantly deconstructing everything that is broken within us to live out the, the really the fullness of new creation. And then now in our world is now a movement uh, that is under this banner. And what grieves my heart as a pastor is as people are becoming familiar with it, they see, okay, here is this biblical thing that, that I need because actually if 2020 didn't teach us something, we desperately need some transformation of what it means to be the church back to the fullness and the purity of Jesus. Yeah. But then, so people then attach themselves to this movement, to leaders of this movement, to voices of this movement. And what, honestly, what makes me angry is because I find these voices liars. I find them deceivers. I find them not because I, I, I deeply disagree with them, but I'm not saying that they're liars and deceivers because I disagree with them. They are liars and deceivers because they package themselves in ways that is dishonest. Like how many times I've watched or talked with people who are leaders in the deconstruction movement and a, a Christian will ask a question and they will respond with uncertainty as if that uncertainty is like, it's safe to be uncertain with me. But what they're not telling them is that that uncertainty isn't them searching for certainty. That uncertainty is their certainty. And they're not honest with that. They're not honestly coming and saying to people, hey, I'm going to help walk with you to the death of your faith. Hey, I am going to walk with, there is no room in the quote unquote de deconstruction movement to come out of it as a vibrant follower of Jesus who fully affirms the authority of scripture. It's not welcome in the deconstruction movement. And what breaks my heart is that they are lying and they are manipulating and treating people as if that is an option when we all know it isn't. And I'm not saying it's not a process of deconstruction. It certainly is. I'm saying it's not an open door in the movement of deconstruction. And it breaks my heart as a pastor that this is, uh, this is what I want to say. And I have, I've said, I've, I've made some enemies in, in my world in the midst of this is you have every right to be faithful to your convictions as I have the right to be faithful to my convictions. Here's the difference. I stand in integrity with people about what I believe and where I'm trying to lead them. And you stand as a manipulator and it breaks my heart. And this is where I want to stand as a shepherd in strong defense. So, okay, my point, my point is made here. Here's leading to my question is, um, is, is one, do you think I'm, you know, it, I've obviously spoke with some strength in there. Um, it, it, what, what, what would you say to people who are going, Hey, I, I'm hurt. I don't know. I don't understand the church and the church of America doesn't look like I my, my faith is in shambles right now. And I've got to figure something out. 
do you believe that there is a, would, would you carry that same warning towards the quote unquote deconstruction movement? What would you say to people who are currently opening those doors to those voices of the deconstruction movement? Uh, anyone who would at this point in their deconstruction say, man, I really want to, I just want to follow Jesus better. How would you encourage them to engage with the deconstruction movement? Well, the first thing I'd say, Phil, is uh, wh- why don't you tell us how you really feel uh, about the situation? Uh, and then secondly, you just handed me about 43 questions. Um, I'm going to attempt to address two of them that I see to be sort of the, the, the central questions here. Um, first of all, I just want to address the fact that um, I just listened to you describe as a pastor mm-hmm. your deep love for the people God has called you to lead. Mm-hmm. And I want to name... Um, I think it's important to name that as a, when I was a pastor, it needs to be named that I personally walked people through divorce, adultery, um, very, very, very pain, children lost parents. And when you follow the trickle back to where that story began, it goes back to people listening to certain podcasts. Mm. Yeah. And um, I think it's an important time in history to name that ideas have consequences. Yeah. And ideas impact people. And we need to be held accountable for our ideas. I mean, the truth is you and I believe that we will stand before Jesus and give account for what we say and teach. Yeah. And we believe that about ourselves. Now I'm going to say this. A lot of people deconstruct Christianity because they have been deeply wounded by the church. Yes. Yes. And this is not a moment in history to delegitimize that trauma and pain. Yes. In fact, by doing that, we end up pushing people further away right. from the news of Jesus. And I, I, I feel a sense of it. an image comes to mind that in, in the parable of the prodigal son, this younger brother runs away with his uh, with his inheritance and says to his dad, dad, I want, I want my money and I want to go. And he goes off and he parties. And of course he has an older brother, you know, an older brother who turns out to be not very receptive to his son coming back to the son coming back. Um, I told that parable to my class once. And as I was, as I was telling the parable, I had this epiphany. I thought, why in the world is the younger son running away? Nobody ever asked that question. Why does he run away? And I had this epiphany. He ran away because of the older brother. Wow. I think he ran away because of the older brother. And the truth is, I've never met somebody who deconstructs because of Christ. They deconstruct because of Christians. Yeah. And we need to name, as people that bear the name of Jesus, that we have harmed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong in naming that. It does not take away from our witness. It's actually a point of healing. And I want to say to the other side, my second answer, there is a cottage industry of podcasts, of um, literature, of, of websites. There is a cottage industry of voices who have a desire to rip people away from the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... And, and that grieves me, and it should grieve you. It should grieve all of us. Right. But we're not doing anybody a service 
by shaming people who are deconstructing their faith. Mm. We need to have a bigger heart than that. And, and I want to say, we need to remember that some of the people that we are talking about here were handed very, 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 very bad theologies of Jesus. And that sometimes people have to deconstruct bad theology to save their faith. Right. Yeah. You know, I say, um, you know, my wife and I grow tomatoes and uh, we love tomatoes. And I, I don't think I shared this when I was with you last. We love tomatoes, Oregon tomatoes. Are, this is why we live here. It rains 10 months out of the year here for two months to be able to grow tomatoes. We grow these tomatoes and they're the best tomatoes you've ever had. When we have people over in the summer who eat at our home, it isn't uncommon for us to have somebody who doesn't like tomatoes and we'll serve them our tomatoes and they'll eat our tomatoes. And then they'll say, oh my gosh, I love tomatoes. And you learn something. People don't hate tomatoes. People hate fake tomatoes. <laughs> and here's what I'm trying to say. I don't think people hate Christ as much as we think they do. I think they hate fake Christianity. Yeah. And as long as, friends, I am intent. I want Jesus. Mm-hmm. I do not want Christianity wed to white nationalism. I do not want Christianity wed to progressive ideology. I want Jesus and I am willing to undo and deconstruct anything that gets in the way of the living God. Mm. Yeah. AJ, that's so, that's so good. And, um, and I receive, I receive your very uh, kind rebuke though. No, that's not a rebuke, but but I'm I'm not rebuking you. I am a pastor with you. Yes. Mm. We, we, we do not serve people ever well by shaming them for facing mm-hmm. trauma. No, exactly. Yeah. And I'm and I'm I'm being tongue in cheek because I don't I don't think. But 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 what? But what can get missed uh, in the strength of my feeling towards those who are, I think are leading some of this is is that I am completely with you in heart and spirit. You're shepherd, and you and care about people, my, and you're tired. You're yes. tired of having to clean up messes created mm. because people listen to podcasts. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and it's actually because I would lay down my life for those who have so deeply been hurt by the church. And I, it grieves me Absolutely. to watch them be unloved in the name of a false love. Absolutely. And, um, and, and even my own story, uh, again, far before, far, far before, uh, deconstruction was a phrase on the lips of pastors and theologians in the way it is now. A uh, turning point of my life is, Jesus, I don't know what to do because I love you and I hate the church. This is a key moment in my own life. And as a prodigal myself, and as somebody that God has rescued in this place, uh, all I want is to walk with people who have faced the worst of bad theology and the worst of the body and they deserve honor. And I just, you know, again, you said the clarity and I just say it again, anyone who's listening to this, who finds themselves in that place of deep doubt and finds themselves in that place of deep hurt and finds themselves going, I've got to do something, even if it's some form of deconstruction, you are loved, you are honored and you're seen. And it is a moment that you need to be received and loved and welcomed uh, and not, not the other way around. Do you just hear it in our language here? There's this um, 
there, there is such a deep tension in, 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 in what we're faced with this, like we're faced with these two things on one hand, kind of this conservative, this kind of fundamentalist Christian conservative, conservative side would say, uh, doubt is, doubt is bad. Don't do it. If you do it, you're wrong. You're bad. You're probably not going to heaven. this sort of, thing. um, and so we demonize doubt on one side, but then you have this other side, this sort of progressive Christianity that says the only way to God is through deconstruction. Mm-hmm. It's like this Gnostic salvation. The mm-hmm. only way to, to be saved is you've got to undo historic Christianity. And we are torn between one side that says that demonizes doubt and one side that valorizes doubt. Mm-hmm. And I think at this moment in history, the Holy Spirit is beginning to pave a third way where we actually begin to see the Thomas path, Mm. that there is a way through doubt that actually leads us deeper to Jesus through doubt. I mean, it would, it just seems so weird to me. We believe Jesus can save us from any sin, but we seem to not have any understanding that Jesus can save us in the midst of our doubt. Mm. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, what a deficient vision of discipleship. And by the way, when you read, when you read people like Henry Nouwen, C.S. Lewis, Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. Eugene Peterson, like the people who have most shaped David in the Bible, who have most shaped our understanding of God, they all have one thing in common. They all were vulnerable and open about their doubts. Yeah, it's so true. Like when you, you can just tell when you're reading or listening to somebody, if somebody is shoving stuff under the carpet or not. Mm-hmm. And the people who have most transformed my life and my pursuit of Jesus mm-hmm. are people that walked with a limp. Mm-hmm. And we're not, we're not valorizing doubt here, but we, friends, our heroes in the faith are people who lost sleep over not knowing how to believe in God. Yeah. Can we take a minute and, and just name and just... Just, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, who our listeners are, our demographic. And um, I think we could say, you know, we're the three of us were in church or have been. We are losing people in that second phase, that, that deconstruction. We're losing them. Like they're not coming out to the reconstruction, the, the, the new, you know, looking at Jesus with a fresh set of eyes, like understanding why, what, um, what, yeah, what's happening? What's happening that we're losing them? And it is. So when you look at the Thomas story, okay, when you look at the Thomas story, so Jesus resurrects. The other disciples see Jesus resurrected. Thomas hasn't. The other disciple, the other 10, Judas is dead. The other 10 have seen him. He wasn't, Thomas wasn't there. And then the disciples see Jesus and Thomas doesn't. And the disciples tell Thomas they saw the resurrected Lord. And by the way, one of the main reasons I see people deconstruct Christianity is that they have some people in their life who have had some experience with Jesus, but they haven't. So the single person who looks at the married people and like, well, they have it. I don't for the person who's had an encounter with the Holy spirit. They've all had it. I haven't. And what we do is we get a question because other people have had this experience and Thomas doesn't have the experience and any doubts. And then a week later, I, Jesus waits a week to show up. (laughs) He does not rush in to solve his problem. He waits a week and then shows himself to him. 
But when you read the narrative, it was the witness of the other disciples that kept Thomas around. Hmm. And here is what I see as being the difference between what works and what doesn't work is that there comes a point in our life when we are all faced with the desire to just go it alone and to do it all by myself. I'm going to, I'm more mature than the church. I've evolved. I'm better. And we begin to walk our own path and we stop listening to the witness of God's people on the ground. One of the hardest things for me as a pastor was when people in my church were choosing to be more shaped by podcasts than they were by the guy who would be in the hospital room if they were dying. And feeling like the flesh and blood was being replaced. And here's what I'm saying. I think when we replace the flesh and blood of a group of people on the ground who gather around some bread and some wine and hear the gospel and have to love people they can't stand, when we replace that with a disembodied set of information, we remove the witness that we need. And it turns out we end up becoming the people we listen to. And if we spent, imagine this, if we spend all of our time only listening to people that deconstruct Christianity, guess what we're going to do? <laughs> but if we also learn to get our butts on the ground and listen to a witness of people around us that love us, who are pointing to the resurrected Jesus, guess mm -hmm. what we'll eventually find? Here's what I'm trying to say. We need to stop replacing the church mm -hmm. with talks. Yeah. Yeah, I think and I'm on. I'm on a podcast here, folks. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to affect your numbers. No. But if this podcast is your your hall pass to not get your butt into a room with people you can't yeah. stand or trying to love Jesus together. Mm -hmm. You are on a path that will lead to something that rejects the ultimate story. Oh, AJ. And I think, I think, you know, obviously this vision of, of Thomas that you've, you've pulled out, right. It, there's what, what we, right. Cause there, there's, there always two pieces of this conversation. There is the, the piece of calling the individual to their ownership and to say, you've got to, you know, you've got to walk this out a certain way, but then there's also a challenge uh, to other followers of Jesus and to the house of Jesus called the church, which is this, right? Like, and I love this vision because here's all we know. Thomas felt safe enough to stay in the house. Yeah. And I wonder if people who are deconstructing <laughs> actually know they're so loved and yeah. so valued. I don't, I don't, I don't dishonor people because I don't think many churches are actually safe enough for Thomas's to stick around. That's exactly oh, right. And you feel just, I feel like what you just, I don't know if we're, get, if we're allowed to get all Holy Spirit here, but I feel like you just said something very prophetic. Mm -hmm. He was invited for a week to be a doubter in the presence of a bunch of witnesses that had seen the resurrection. Uh -huh. 
They made space for him. When Mm -hmm. Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt, it implies Mm -hmm. there are doubters in our midst. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, gosh, I even, AJ, I'd love your thoughts on this because this is also reading into the moment, but I think it's, it's, it's there is, you know, if I was Thomas and I've thought about this a lot, this is a, this is a, even a point I've walked through great doubt in my own life. Um, one of the great, so the great doubt of being a prodigal. Now I actually walked through a very significant season of, of doubt towards the nature of God and heaven and hell. And it was a very hard and important season in my life. Uh, but I've thought about this, you know, with Thomas, like what it would be like to give up everything, to follow Jesus, to abandon all other loves. And you have given yourself to the person of Jesus. And he, who is now the resurrected Lord of human history and can do whatever he wants to do, chooses to show up the house when you're not there. <laughs> and the pain. Yeah. Wow. And I often find this with people that actually doubt that sometimes there really is an existential intellectual doubt happening. And I, I honor that. But I find most of the time, it's this feeling, God, you chose to hurt me. Yeah. Like you show up when I'm not here. Like you, you come to the house when I'm not, that's how little you value me. And I actually think what Thomas was feeling was profound pain. Am I this unimportant? Am I this unvaluable? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, because what I've learned is that so many people who are in the place of doubt or then who enter into the realm of deconstruction, man, they just feel great pain. And it is, it is the body of Christ who must learn how to love those in great pain and not by lying about what we believe or not about acting like we don't hold to Jesus or his authority, but we have to create those safe houses. And, 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 and you know, uh, uh, Peter Enns, who, you know, is a theologian we both know who I, I respect and I disagree with greatly at times, right? <laughs> um, he, he, he says this thing that I, I you know, he, he has a fondness for progressive Christianity. I do not. And he, uh, he advocates it for a way I never would. But he makes this statement about how we have to recognize progressive Christianity is a response to fundamentalism. Absolutely. He is absolutely and, right. and, and even though I would hold to different convictions than he does, if we do not have the empathy and the awareness and the intellect and the honor to go, yes, this is a monster of our own making yeah. because the church of Jesus has normalized fake love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should have written this book. Oh, stop it. <laughs> No, clearly, yeah, no, 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 but what, no, hold on, let me say, can I, can I respond now? Yeah, you got it. Okay, let me respond. You know, when you fall asleep in the middle of the night, right, and, and, and you lay on your arm and it falls asleep and you wake up and you try to shake it off, it's got ants all over it. You know, you wait, you just, you, but you, you stay connected to it. You don't cut it off if it's not feeling right, right? Mm. Sometimes parts of the body of Christ fall asleep and what do you do? You just stick with them. You, yeah. you don't cut them off. You don't. And, and the, the end of the story, the end of the story is you got to, history tells us, where does Thomas go after this? He goes to India. If you've ever met an Indian Christian with the last name Thomas, there are 2000 years of Christians, of generations, of generations who are all faithful to Jesus because Thomas, after this experience, went and preached. Mm. We've got to stop seeing people in deconstruction and doubt as problems. They're just preparing for missionary work. I love it. They're not, they're not problems. They're gifts to us. And you're exactly right. 
Progressive Christianity, which I have plenty of critiques for, as I do for conservative Christianity. But progressive Christianity is a response to ways that people like myself have failed. And we do an honor to them to name our sin. Yeah. Yes. I had this woman come to me. This is in the book. This woman who was raised in a very conservative Christian home, um, who she said in her childhood, there were no boundaries, no boundaries. Nobody was ever given boundaries. And she said, the sign of my childhood, I remember, is that my mom, whenever she would come into my room, she would always barge. She'd never knock. She'd never knock. She would just barge in. She'd just never knock. And so this young woman, she goes to college. She, of course, deconstructs her faith. It takes one philosophy class. She's done. She watched one YouTube video. It's over. She goes off to college. She deconstructs her whole faith. And then after college, she gets married and has a kid. And it turns out when you have kids, you really need God. And so she's like, okay, okay, I'm going to go back to church. She goes back to church and she starts reading her Bible again. And she reads in Revelation that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Wow. And she says, for the very first time, I got it. I spent my childhood having faith forced down my throat. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in my life, I'm actually being invited in. And I'll tell you, when you spend your childhood being coerced into belief, you're going to have to do something with that Mm -hmm. because Jesus does not barge the door down. He knocks. He is a gent. He's a kind, gentle being who will not barge in. And for her, realizing that Jesus had really good boundaries <laughs> was the reason she followed him again. That's amazing. Um, your book, I want to I, I want to ask a question and I want to honor your time, but for those wondering about I'm wondering who is the is the book written for those in deconstruction, those walking through it, or is it those walking through it, those welcoming, trying to walk with people um, who are going through it? Who is it? Is it for all? Yeah. You know, when a publisher, you know, when you're writing a book proposal, they, they say, you got to identify the author, the, the audience. And this was a very weird book for me because uh, as Phil said at the very beginning of this podcast, if you are not walking through doubt or deconstruction or know somebody who's walking through doubt and deconstruction, you need to put your seatbelts on. Mm. because we, we are in a, we are in a new environment, yeah. a very new environment. And if this is not something we're going to walk through, it's going to be something our kids walk through. It's going to be something people in our church walk through. It's going to be something our pastors may walk through. And the, the heart of this book is for the person who's going through it. But the truth is, I think it's important to learn this stuff before you walk through it. Absolutely. So I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but it's for anybody who lives in the West. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So that's a pretty big audience. I love that. I'm guys, I'm a, I am in the, the trenches of youth ministry right now. So I am with this upcoming generation. They, they are right. The future generation of our, of our church and our leadership structures. And they are, they're starting here. This is where they're starting. I mean, they are. It's they're they're asking me questions that I don't have answers for. Questions I've, I my generation didn't ask. It's actually amazing, you know. They're they're living in reaction, and um, you know. 
can we just stop saying that that's a problem? Right. Because ultimately, it's actually forcing people that want to follow Jesus to grow up really fast. And we need to be people that want to be the deepest people possible. And when kids ask us questions that we've never thought through, it's God's invitation to go deep. Absolutely. It's And I think part of this, right, which is is that we are following Jesus in in the midst of uh arrived and coming post-Christianity, where an entire culture has grown up in an embedded value system, it's throwing off, it's saying I no longer and then and, and you know what they have that right. They are not followers of Jesus. And they have in, they have they they have grown up in a world deeply shaped by followers of Jesus, and now they are saying, "I do not want this anymore." And as painful as it is, the invitation that's there is that our children will actually follow Jesus because they love Him and they yes, him, and not because they've grown up in a culture that tells them they need to. And while it's much more painful, it is also much more authentic. And what the world needs is followers of Jesus who follow him because they believe him and not follow him because there's a culture attached to it. Jesus, bring the day that we no longer are people that are Christians because of our heritage, but we are Christians because of the call of Christ. Um, Lord, bring the day. So bring the day. AJ, can I ask you one last question? Do you have time for that? Do you have time for that? Yes. Okay, go sorry. for it. I missed that. Um, you know, one, one of the things that, so, you know, people need to read your book because, and they, and they, and they probably need to read many other books because there's so many dynamics behind this that we all they need we all to read know. the nine others that he wrote. And, and do, they do. <laughs> I've, I've, I've read four of AJ's books and, uh, and I've loved all of them. There's so. some of my books I would I, not recommend. I actually did but not, but know you, not Now I need to go, I need to go on a, um, uh, you know, a spree, but, one of the things that, that people often, I think, misunderstand is about this, about somebody who's walking through doubt or about somebody who is walking through deconstruction, whether they even know that label or not, yeah. or somebody who is you know, actively in the midst of deconstruction or the deconstruction movement, is that you, you always deconstruct to an authority. Because like mm-hmm. people don't really understand the, the philosophical movement behind this, what the nature of secularism, the way metamodernism and postmodernism and, and critical theories and all that. They, they don't understand that this actually idea or philosophy comes from a source and it has mm-hmm. implications about what this is. That, that you never, you, you always have to choose. A deconstruction is an undoing, right? But you don't undo to nothing. You yes. always undo to an authority. And as followers, this is what I want to say, and this is the question I want to ask. So many people don't realize that the problem with the deconstruction movement, it is an undoing to the authority of self. And if what you're, and if you're undoing to the authority of yourself, what you'll reconstruct will be you. That's just, that's the print. It's math. It's an equation. If you undo to the self and redo to the self, you're going to end with the self. But as those who are followers of Jesus, and actually, even if you're in a place of deep crisis and your pain, hold to the beauty and the, and the image of who he is. This is where we have to come to a vision of, of undoing to him and being redone by him. It's, we have to let him be the authoritative source. And I would encourage anyone who's starting this process, you got to start there. I, I beg you, even if it doesn't work, even just, just start with that, because I believe that will re- remedy some other. And this is the final question in that, in that place of... Um, what is it where, where somebody who's listening to this, 
AJ, and they are in the middle. They have, you know, listened to uh, the, the great deconstructionist podcast, and they have picked up uh, the, the great high priests of deconstruction's words, and they are, and, and it feels like salvation because I understand that. That's what happens because when you are getting saved from fake Christianity, it feels like salvation. And this is what is so happens to people. And if you're somebody's bought into this podcast and they're there, and if we have any voice to help them, the person who's in the middle, they've already gone in. Where, where would you call them to go? Man, that's a great question. I mean, you just, you know, you just sort of unpacked the Israel and Egypt story, didn't you? Like Israel is freed from slavery in Egypt to find themselves 40 days later enslaving themselves with a golden calf. Mm. And, you know, N.T. Wright's line, it's, it's never hard for God to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's really hard for God to get Egypt out of Israel. And that we often go from enslavement to one thing to enslavement in another. When in reality, it's just God up on the mountain who wants us to come up. Mm. I would say this. If you're in the midst of all this and you're like, where do I go? There is no better time to go up the mountain and just cry out to God. Mm. You are raw and naked and God wants to see you Mm. talk to God again Mm. oh I love that so so good um Again, all, with all these topics, I mean, this is why you wrote a book on it, right? Because it's more than a it's more than a fifty minute conversation. But what I hope it does is inviting people into. I hope it's inviting those that are in the midst of it to to go up the mountain. I hope it's inviting those in the church to not, like you said, I love your analogy. If you don't cut off your hand when it falls asleep, you know, you stick with it, you shake it, you fix it, you wake it up. You shake it. It's <laughs> just, yeah. So um, AJ, thank you so much, guys. The book is called After Doubt. It just released. You can find it all places books are sold. Um, you can get it on Amazon. AJ, you are not on Instagram. I am now. I just signed up yesterday. Are you kidding? Listen, I haven't posted the thing, same handle. Mr. AJ, what's your handle? A.J.Swoboda. Guys, you heard it. This is history making podcast content. <laughs> AJ Swoboda. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Should I take pictures of my coffee or things? Oh, yeah. Lots of pictures of yourself with like um, Bible verses. That would be really impactful for people. <laughs> AJ Swoboda. Bless. I want to mark this moment. Zero posts, 30 <laughs> followers. It's very Christ-like yeah. and, uh, and only following one. Also very Christ-like. <laughs> Are you following God? <laughs> Is that? I want to measure this the next time oh. we have you on the podcast. Cause I guess if we're, you know, you know, this is what I want to say. If we're going to do a, a first and a second, there might as well. Uh, the trilogy is always, Absolutely. always. Absolutely. It will, will hit his 11th book that he's working on. I'm excited. I'm excited to. Can I just give one final plug? Uh, my friend, Dr. Nijay Gupta, uh, who's a New Testament scholar at Northern Seminary and myself, uh, have started a podcast called In Faith and Doubt. And it is particularly catered 
to helping people think through the complexities of following Jesus in our very weird moment in time. So just Ooh, the plug, awesome. available. Becky, in, we, we have friends like that. Yeah, we absolutely do. In Faith and Doubt, the podcast, so you can listen to that. And now he's on Instagram, you guys. The last time we talked to him, he wasn't. So we've had an impact. We've had an influence. Um, A.J.Swoboda, that's on Instagram. S-W-O-B-O-D-A, there you go. All right, guys. Thanks. Uh, make sure you go connect with him and go give him a follow because he really needs it to boost his confidence here. <laughs> and then the book After Doubt, his other books, Subversive Sabbath that we talked about. Get both of those. And thanks so much for joining us and for having this conversation. It's an important one to have. And we're grateful for your voice, AJ. Enjoy. Thanks for having me. You guys are awesome. All right, guys. We'll see you next time.